We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. It was Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. It was really his moment. And the stuff he said came out of the mid 20th century and it was pre-PMC socialism. It was not PMC targeted. Bernie had has had and has, he's alive and kicking. Uh, Bernie had and has a deep affection for the actual working class, for people without a college degree, for people who do manual labor, for low-income people who are gonna be low-income for their whole life, not by choice. Bernie connected with the working class and the people he picked for his movement did not connect with the working class. They instead envisioned themselves and their college educated, you know, their, their shabby intellectual friends as the true working class and ignored the people who, you know, like staff Amazon warehouses and whatnot. If you don't have an industrial policy, that's called a pro-finance industrial policy. Finance became our, the arbiter of our economy, but at the same time took an increasingly giant fat cut and then crashed the whole thing. Yay, that worked. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. A couple weeks ago, we talked about why Vivek uh, is not the right candidate. Um, last for tech. Uh, last week we talked about why globalization uh, could be awesome in 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 getting into the nuance of, of of what that could mean uh, ex exactly. And um, this week I want to go deeper into your post around Bernie Sanders' policies or policy goals, and you outlined four ways uh, or addendums or sort of different versions of you sympathize with some of the goals or problems Bernie identifies, but you you want uh, different solutions. For, first, we can maybe zoom out and and give some historical because the Bernie phenomenon over the past decade or so, you know, even going back to the Occupy Wall Street, sort of this like left wing economic populism. There's some of it that you're sympathetic to, and there's some of it that you just think is really misguided. So why don't you unpack your 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 views on that sort of broader movement the last 10, 10 15 years? Right. Well, honestly, I think that the, um, the Bernie movement went back farther. And really, it has its roots in mid 20th century uh, sort of Democratic Party factions. Uh, um, if you look at the, uh, the Eugene McGovern campaign, uh, sorry, Eugene McCarthy campaign and the George McGovern campaign, um, those really had a lot of elements of Bernieism. Uh, so, you know, originally this was, this was the hippie and, 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 you know, Bernie was part of that whole thing. You know, he was one of the hippies of the hippie generation. So really the new socialist movement is kind of what the hippies evolved into. And they, um, they kept some of the strengths of the hippie movement, but I think inherited a lot of the weaknesses of that movement uh, more so, which is why I was very dissatisfied with it. But I think you can see the, the sort of rebirth of, of interest in that movement in the Seattle WTO protests of 1999. Um, I think that you really saw, um, uh, you really saw the, that, that was the first Occupy Wall Street. And of course the Seattle protesters had a lot, made, a lot of good points you know we should have listened to them more about the wto and china's entry into the wto and what that would entail for american uh, workers and and for the global environment etc but you know occupy wall street certainly did supercharge it but then um i really think that what happened was in in 2015 and 2016 it, that was sort of the you know if not the peak certainly at, at the height of our era of unrest in the 2010s um everybody had this idea that things needed to change, the old power structures needed to fall, and we needed, you know, new stuff to take over. They started groping around, and of course, on the right, you got Trump. Um, and on the left, people didn't just want to stick with Hillary Clinton. And I'm when I say people, obviously, you know, Hillary Clinton won that 2016 primary, but I think that there was a groundswell of of young people, of disaffected, primarily educated, disaffected progressives disproportionately white very likely to be educated and they were pretty disaffected over a lot of things we can argue about why we can sort of psychoanalyze that but i think that that's where the bernie movement came from and it 
drew on a whole, uh, some of those earlier events like Occupy Wall Street, and it drew on some of the old hippie traditions uh, and, and some of the more unfortunate um, aspects of that. So, for example, uh, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, the, a bunch of people who were anti-Vietnam War, who were against the Vietnam War, uh, realized that the Democratic establishment you know, uh, like um, Hubert Humphrey and, and people like that were, were essentially pro-Vietnam War. And so they, they focused very hard on defeating the pro-war democratic establishment. And this led them to be very factionalist. And so in 1968, they failed. And there's this famous episode in Chicago where all these hippies get beaten up by the, the Chicago cops who get called in by Richard Daley, the sort of machine politics, uh, you know, uh, mayor of Chicago calls in the calls in the um, the cops to just beat up these hippies in the in the park. There's a good Norman Mailer sort of memoir about this, um, and I'm trying to remember. Uh, I don't remember what, what which one it was, but then but then he describes being there for this and watching it happen, watching the cops beat the hell out of all these hippies. And so, in 1972, the hippies got better organized and they uh, and they actually managed to win. It was a very close run thing, but they managed to get George McGovern as the nominee of the Democratic Party. That was their great triumph. And um, George McGovern was not ideologically very leftist. He was, you know, of course, the Republicans said he was ideologically leftist, but the Republicans say that about every single Democrat who exists, you know, from now till the beginning of time. And Democrats say the same about Republicans on the right. But George McGovern was not very leftist, but what he was was an outsider. He was a factionalist who basically said, if you support the Vietnam War, you're not, if you support the Vietnam War, you're not one of my friends. Um, you know, the war was really the litmus test issue. And by then, a lot of Democrats had migrated to opposing the war because it was at that point, it was clear the war was just stupid. But he, he had this credential of saying, like, I opposed it before any of you people did and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so he, he won barely. And then he got stomped by Nixon in the general. But it was and afterwards, the Democrats implemented this superdelegate system to try to stop insurgencies like that anymore, uh, which Republicans should have implemented as well, but they didn't. Uh, which is one reason, one among several reasons we got Trump. Um, but then, but then anyway, yeah. So, so Bernie was an attempt to repeat this. It was in a way history repeating itself at the, at, in 2016, when Bernie had lost the primary and it was fairly close, you know, it was not super close, but it was fairly close. Uh, Bernie lost the primary to Hillary and a lot of the Bernie people said it was rigged. Um, you know, the system was rigged against us. Uh, Bernie was cheated. They made a big stink at the Democratic convention. And it was very factionalist. It was very focused on winning institutional power within the Democratic Party. And if you looked at the kind of intellectual movement around Bernie, Chapo Trap House podcast or, or whatever, those people spent most of their time criticizing Democrats, uh, people that anyone they saw as being allied with the Democratic establishment, that was their primary target. Of course, they'd, they'd make fun of Trump too, but there was, you know, there was not much, uh, as finance people say, there's not much alpha to be gained for them making fun of Republicans because all Democrats made fun of Republicans. So instead the, here were Democrats who spent their time making fun of other Democrats. And that was, um, that was unfortunate because that sort of factionalism, uh, is, is just not incredibly useful. Like you don't see Republicans doing this and it is a, it is a longstanding tendency on the left to devolve into ideological factionalism, but sort of partisan factionalism within a party is just not helpful. Like, and yet since 1968 and 1972, since those elections, um, there has been this factionalism within the democratic party that, you know, that started calling itself socialism in the mid 2010s as a response to popular unrest and to the issues of the day but is really just a, you know, a faction that's been there since the 60s. Yeah. Well, you, you see it a little bit on the right, the sort of rhino, you know, Republican in name only, or sort of, you know, they, they eat their own too a little bit, right? Or they, they criticize the Romney Republican. They, they fight, they fight, yeah. The, the tradition is that the left fights over ideology while the right fights over, uh, you know, which big man gets to be in charge. The right fights over who's alpha while the left fights over, like, who's the messiah. You saw a little bit, different of that with uh, with Bernie stuff, because what you actually saw was in the 2020 primary, you saw Elizabeth Warren come out with some very strongly progressive ideas that Bernie people hadn't even been talking about wealth tax, uh, co-determination for, um, you know, basically that's that's giving labor representation in corporate boardrooms uh, and a number of other things that, you know, Bernie had been very, very focused on healthcare, his his plan that he called Medicare for all be very focused on that. And then Warren came with, out with these other ideas. And then the Bernie people felt you know, they, they were in some ways more progressive than what what Bernie was doing, or at least on a, in a more 
you know, a direction with more potential to really change the way the American economy worked. And so then um, the Bernie people uh, got really mad and there was this massive anti-Warren campaign. And, you know, eventually they, they called her a snake uh, and all these, all these things. And, um, and when Bernie lost on Super Tuesday 2020, there were people there just blaming Warren. And this was this was not an ideological battle. It is not like you know communist versus anarchist versus evolutionary socialists back in like a hundred years ago. This is not that. Instead, this was just an argument over who gets to be the big man. So it was it was arguments on the left that parallel the typical style of arguments on the right. Yeah, but when you go back to the sort of this this faction that started or, you know, sort of emerged with the battle of Seattle in 1999 and it's occupied, like, what do you see as the ideological sort of, um, leaders behind it? Like, is, is Piketty a, a big one or David Harvey wrote a brief history of, of neoliberalism. Like I remember even in college when, when I was there, like, and I'm sympathetic to, you know, you mentioned the critiques that we should have listened to around China entering the WTO or, and what that means for working class and, or sort of, you know, the ex excess of big banks. And those seem almost like right-wing talking points uh, today, or there seemed to be some horseshoe theory there. But what I didn't understand is sort of why there was so much concern over the increasing privatization of, of, of more and more services, um, given that those services, if they're not privatized, they seem to be more expensive and thus hurt the, the, the working class more broadly. Maybe I'm painting too broad of a brush, but I'm curious how, how you reflect on that. Well, you know, when I look at the actual intellectual intellectuals that a lot of these people were drawing on, I see um, uh, Noam Chomsky is obviously a big one. If you're talking about foreign policy attitudes, um, then Noam Chomsky has got to be number one. Um, and if you're looking, and, and this was this would become a problem for them with the Ukraine war because Noam Chomsky said some very very stupid things about that. Um, but then, uh, you know, on on economic issues, obviously um, James Galbraith was a big one, and that strain of thinking was picked up by uh, uh, Robert Reich, who was um, I think he was Labor Secretary in Clinton's first term, but I, I can't quite remember. But he was in the Clinton administration. Um, and so he was, you know, Robert Reich basically came up with this, the, uh, a progressive agenda that the so-called socialists later adopted as sort of their baseline, uh, for how they thought about the world. Um, or, uh, yeah, so James Galbraith, Robert Reich and, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, um, she was very important. Um, she's actually the person, it, ironically, she's the person who wrote this piece called PMC socialism, uh, you know, where she criticized socialists for basically, instead of the working class, uh, focusing on downwardly mobile, you know, sort of like shabby grad students and overeducated uh, people who's with frustrated ambition rather than people with real material needs, uh, the working class. She criticized this. There's been a long tradition of socialists criticizing other socialists for exactly this thing. So if you look at Orwell's um, uh, The Lion and the Unicorn or The Road to, to Wigan Pier, uh, he, in those two pieces, he really criticizes British socialists a hundred years ago for the same thing, you know, the very same thing. And, champagne um, socialists or this kind of thing. champagne socialists, it's not, not even champagne, but just like, you know, you went, yeah, you went to, you know, you went to like some decently good university, UCLA or something. And now you're, now you're working as like a school teacher or like at some nonprofit or something you're making like 40 5k year and you're like i you know i was just you know a few years ago i was in my dorm room discussing the biggest ideas in the world and like debating plato versus nietzsche whatever you know and now i'm sitting here like teaching basic math to like poor kids or, or just something like where is my greatness where is the greatness i was promised my my parents are lawyers for god's sake do i have to go to law school too you know like and 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 you know, if you look at the bios of, of like the, you know, some of the guys on Chapo Trap House, this is them, right? And for a lot of these people, the, the new socialist movement was kind of this intellectual muscle suit that they could strap on where you have all this like socialist alt history uh, that's standing behind you. You know, you, you've like the establishment's been lying to you about history. And, you know, did you know that we overthrew the government of Guatemala and, and, you know, just for bananas that that's, I mean, that's not alt history. That's true. That happened. <laughs> um, but like, but, but the idea, what, what's alt is the idea that people don't know this and that normal people like are unaware of this, you know, <laughs> like, and, um, and so that was, there's, there's this whole like 
canon of like things that socialists claim that like no one in America knows about. Did you know we bombed these people? Yeah, yeah. If you watch the news, you know that. Grenada, have you heard of that? And it, it made these people feel like intellectuals. You know, maybe you could quote the names of some um, of some socialist writers that like. Or, or like quasi-socialist, right? Like Gramsci or something that like you think that you haven't read and that you expect no one else has read so you can get away with like, I was Gramsci or whatever. And then, um, and then just, you know, and then just pure bravado. Like a, a lot of the, a lot of those guys just like, if you, if you just go, are constantly on the aggressive, on the, on the offensive. You're dumb. No, I mean like affecting the personality of a fourth grade cafeteria table bully uh, you know, is not a substitute for actual intellectual heft. And then, you know, along with this, there were a whole bunch of, of sort of, t you know, economic talking points that all came in one way or another from Robert Reich. And, um, but we're laundered through, you know, a, a series of, you know, Anand Giridharadas or and any of these, uh, you know, leftist aligned columnists and, and intellectuals. You had a lot of these, these talking points. For example, um, one of my favorites here is the idea that Glass-Steagall repeal, the repeal of Glass-Steagall was responsible for the 2008 financial crisis. Like this is something you can immediately tell who, finds, who feels sympathetic to the Bernie faction or who feels like they're part of that faction with, uh, you know, 80% accuracy, I'd say, by seeing who talks about Glass-Steagall. Um, the truth is that financial deregulation did cause the 2008 crisis, but it wasn't Glass-Steagall. It was the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000. What Glass-Steagall was, was, a, um, was a, uh, a rule saying that commercial banks, which, serve, you know, which have your checking account and whatnot, or like do mortgage lending, can't combine with investment banks, uh, which do like underwriting of IPOs and, and whatnot. Um, commercial banks and investment banks cannot be owned by the same company. They can't merge. And so we repealed that in the 1990s. And um, uh, there is this, this hand-wavy BS theory that commercial and investment banks then started adopting, because they started thinking of competing with each other, even though they didn't merge, they started thinking about competing with each other and commercial banks started adopting the risky culture of investment banks, even without actually merging with them because of Glass-Steagall appeal. It's totally made up and um, there's no evidence for this at all. And because the, the mergers between commercial and investment banks didn't happen until actually 2008 when sort of, um, you know, Bear Stearns started failing and was acquired, Merrill Lynch failed and was acquired. Uh, those actually helped reduce the total, uh, you know, crisis by allowing some of these bad uh, investment banks to get acquired by commercial banks, which had a lot more assets. And so that was the first time that the rubber really hit the road on Glass-Steagall repeal. In other words, it didn't, this is, did not cause the crisis. What the thing that caused the crisis was the Commodity, Future, Commodity Futures Modernization Act, which basically allowed you to sell all these uh, various derivatives without going through central clearinghouses, what, which meant that you had this tangle where nobody knew who owed what. And so that when you started getting these deep doubts about how much these housing-backed bonds are really worth, everybody panicked. Um, were you in college at that time during the 2008? Yeah. Yeah. At that time, everybody panicked and, uh, you know, like no one knew who owed what to who. And yeah. these derivatives were just so they represented so much leverage, like derivatives naturally represent leverage. They, um, they could just blow up on anybody and nobody knew who, which counterparties would go down. And eventually, you know, we just bailed everybody out. And then we found out that there's one important counterparty that we hadn't remembered to bail out called AIG, which had all these credit default swaps, which then started failing. And then we bailed them out too. And so we go, oh, we forgot one. Uh, but anyway, so we bailed them all out. And, but the Commodity Futures Modernization Act is really bad. Bernie Sanders voted for it. That's one of many reasons why social, the socialist faction will not talk about that. They will talk about Glass-Steagall repeal, but they'll have no idea how Glass-Steagall repeal actually led to the financial crisis. There will be no, you know, even the hand-wavy theory that I sketched out, which has no evidence for it and is just implausible. N your average socialist person will not know that. They'll just yell at you and call you dumb if you raise this point, just like they do all the time. So, so this, this attitude and this approach was doomed from the start. Factionalism combined with just like substituting aggression for, for actual knowledge of stuff. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. What about the broader critique of neoliberalism? Um, of and you, there was increasing there was concern about increasing privatization and what that might do for uh, inequality or what that might do for 
um, you know, making sure that there's a sufficient floor for 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 American, or I guess for, they were concerned about the effects on, on working class Americans. You've been defending neoliberalism for a long time. Would have been the critiques of neoliberalism, like almost steel man those those critiques, and then let's uh, take them down. Well, I don't know that I'm a defender of neoliberalism. I just think that uh, people got some of the critics got over their skis here. Neoliberalism, the root of all the modern world's problems. No, it's not. Like it had some problems, obviously, but then many of the modern world problems simply came from elsewhere. Like it's uh, that that simplistic story is wrong. But um, so so I I I am a strong proponent of industrial policy and of many restrictions on trade. Um, that neoliberals would just absolutely, you know, left neoliberals and right neoliberals would just look at me like, ah, oh my God, industrial policy. Oh my God, you're subsidizing specific industries. Oh my God, you're restricting trade with China. And they would like just lose their shit. And, you know, so, so I'm not, I'm not on board with the neoliberals. And, um, and, you know, in terms of privatization, I think that there's been huge, huge mistakes with privatization. Um, interestingly, I think that the biggest mistakes with privatization have been outsourcing local and to some extent state government functions to nonprofits. So like local and state governments have no state capacity anymore. They don't have civil services that are competent and can do stuff, right? Uh, to a certain extent, the federal government too, but that's a, a, a separate problem. But I would say that you used to have very competent state and city bureaucracies that would do a lot more stuff like transportation planning. And then those forces got those workforces got cut and cut. And then instead they hired these expensive nonprofits to do it. They're like, oh yeah, they're nonprofits. They'll be cheaper because they're not taking profit, but they're also they're all, they are taking profit. It's just in forms of salaries for their execs. So if you look at, for example, Todco in San Francisco is the classic example. It's this uh, you know, they're supposed to do affordable housing. They're an affordable housing nonprofit. And then, you know, a recent uh, dig into their finances found that over the years they're built, they're spending less and less and less on housing and more and more and more on salaries of their own. So tell me that's not profit of some sort. But yet these, you know, these liberal cities, progressive cities like San Francisco outsource so many of their core government functions to nonprofits. It's, it was this compromise between Reaganism of just, you know, outsource everything to profit for profits and the, you know, like traditional uh, progressive approach of like, just have the government bureaucracy do it. It was this compromise of like, okay, we're not going to have the government bureaucracy do it, but we're not going to have for profits do it either. So here are these nonprofits that we can compromise by giving all our money to them. And it went really, really badly. So that was a huge failure. Um, but it was, that's, you know, um, some progressives would have preferred to have kept the civil service strong, um, but but it's a bit of a, a historical moot point because now progressives are very, very, very invested in the nonprofit industrial complex and keeping that going, and um, and that's that's not good because they're not efficient. They they suck, honestly. Um, not not all nonprofits suck. There's some good nonprofits out there, but overall, it, it was a bad approach. And um, in terms of for-profit privatization, I think that you see that much more in other countries than America because those other countries had nationalized more to begin with. So, for example, the United Kingdom, you saw Margaret Thatcher's privatization of stuff that in America had never been government at all. You know, so we couldn't privatize that because it was never public. Um, and you do see for-profit prisons, and we have fairly good evidence showing that for-profit prisons do worse along pretty much every metric than, than government-run prisons. Um, we see uh, in terms of both conditions and recidivism and everything you could ever want from a prison, the for-profit prisons do it worse and ultimately end up costing more money because there's just no direct oversight. It's like one more link in the chain. So, so that's a for-profit privatization that went really, really bad. But had those prisons been nonprofits, it would have gone the same. And, um, and uh, what are some other bad examples of privatization? I mean, I guess I suppose like Blackwater, you know, mercenaries, stuff like that, which we tried during Iraq to like cut costs. And then we're like, okay, that sucks these guys don't work these guys fail and um yeah so so that so for profit but but for-profit privatization has worked in some countries so for example japan privatized a lot of its trains and now they're better and that was for-profit privatization and um in fact a lot of the companies uh also make a lot of money on the side doing real estate development around the train stations and guess what it works really really well um and and uh, so for-profit privatization was not done a lot in America. It was mostly nonprofit privatization because we didn't have the government. We, we outsourced core government functions to these nonprofits and it, it didn't go well. So, so that in that sense, if you want to call nonprofit privatization neoliberalism in that sense that it really failed us. But I think the bigger failures of neoliberalism are uh, 
just the lack of industrial policy. The fact that we had the, um, we, we essentially said the government's not going to pick winners. Instead, we're going to let the finance industry do the job of picking winners. Well, you just picked a winner and it's called the finance industry. <laughs> and this is a point that my, my other podcast co-host, Brad DeLong, made in a book uh, called Concrete Economics. He said, if you don't have an industrial policy, that's called a pro-finance industrial policy. Finance became our, the arbiter of our economy, but at the same time took an increasingly giant fat cut and then crashed the whole thing. Yay, that worked. <laughs> that didn't work. It's uh, so so that was a, the, the biggest failure of neoliberalism was was handing over the reins of the economy to the finance industry, which lowered our productivity, outsourced a lot of important necessary stuff and then crashed our whole economy. There's a um, there's a great book called Pivotal Decade by Judith Stein that people should read about this shift. And it was really in the 70s. Uh, one thing about neoliberalism that people don't understand is that it began in the 1970s, not the 80s. Reagan just had the rhetoric. You know, it really began under Carter. And I, I remember at one point many years ago, you were you were called the the chief neoliberal shill. Was that more like tongue in cheek and, and incorrect, or has has time you know shown that hey, you know, been been less kind to neoliberals neoliberal thought over time? <laughs> well, okay. So first of all, it was an internet joke, right? So yes. you got these guys <laughs> when when some of these these silly leftist people like Cornell West started calling Barack Obama a neoliberal. Um, and someone called Beyonce a neoliberal. The problem with Beyonce is that she's neoliberal. <laughs> that is moronic. And when people started saying that, some some people got together and like, okay, well, guess what? We're going to just start calling ourselves neoliberal, unironically, yeah. and it, you know, and and sort of cobbled together this like internet neoliberalism, which is which is hilarious. And they started doing a March Madness style bracket on Twitter of polls uh, to determine who would be the chief neoliberal shill. And I was elected in the first poll in a completely bot rigged election. It was shamelessly rigged. <laughs> Matt Iglesias was about to defeat me. And then just like, he got botted. Um, and, and so like, and of course the next year I was, I, I was about to win and I got botted. So they, you know, the, the, he was the shill the second year. And, um, but then uh, everybody just got botted and they just, um, you know, it was all sham and it was a, it was just a joke and they had a Reddit and then they, um, just like the DNC. Blah, blah, blah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, it was the DNC. So if you want to look for actual elections that were rigged, look at the neoliberal shill polls. Yes. And so for a year in 2018, I was the neoliberal shill of 2018. And for, for that one year, I, in a sometimes tongue-in-cheek manner, usually tongue-in-cheek, tried to say like great, awesome things are neoliberal. So I called FDR neoliberal. And this made a lot of people mad. They're like, no, he's not. You know what? He kind of was. He kind of was. He wanted to have everything be done through private companies. He was scared of deficits. He wanted uh, Social Security to, be, you know, all the government benefits to be based on how much you earned and worked and uh, all this stuff. He was neoliberal and he was like sort of covertly anti-union. Like, so FDR was neoliberal, but nobody liked me saying that. And, uh, but, but then, so I could provoke people. And so um, eventually I passed the, the torch, other neoliberal shills, but I... I've always been like a proponent of industrial policy. I wouldn't say always. I would say that increasingly over time. I was always curious about it. And increasingly over time, I've, I've concluded that it's important. And this, I, I, I didn't put that on hold when they made me neoliberal shill with this goofy fake election. Yeah. Let's segue. So we gave some preamble on, on sort of the Bernie movement. We're going to get to your, your four sort of policy edits. Um, is it, what is the legacy of, of the Bernie movement on on sort of Biden or the DNC today, if any? And then let's get to your 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 four policy proposals. You know that uh, have similar goals to what Bernie wants, but maybe different means to get there. Right. So um, Biden has done two has done or tried to do two big things that the Bernie movement wanted. One of them was to really make the fight against climate change central to his economic policy. Uh, you saw with the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act is really a Green New Deal in all but name. Um, and so you see um, the other thing is student debt cancellation. That was a huge priority for the Bernie people. And um, and so uh, Biden attempted to do student debt cancellation. It was smacked down by the courts. But Biden then did create a new uh, plan, the, the SAVE program, which is income-based repayment, which will help avoid a giant buildup of unpayable, you know, screwed up student debt in the future. Uh, 
And so really, um, Biden tried to do, you know, focus on climate change, uh, you know, with a Green New Deal type policy and um, student debt cancellation, uh, which he failed to do, but will do income based repayment in the future. And those things that he tried to do were very much things that the Bernie movement wanted. Um, and it's not clear without whether without the Bernie movement, he would have done the student debt thing at all. Uh, he probably would have done the income-based repayment thing, but whether he would have tried to cancel like all that student debt at all without the Bernie movement is not clear. And whether climate change would have been so central to his industrial policy is not clear. I think it maybe would have because it was Obama was headed in that direction already, even well before the Bernie movement existed. But I and and just concern over climate change is so pervasive in progressive circles outside the socialist movement. But maybe the Sunrise people storming Diane Feinstein's office and demanding a Green New Deal and all this stuff like that, maybe that had an effect. Now, I will say that I think the vector for those progressive policies actually entering the Biden administration was not Bernie. It was Elizabeth Warren, who, despite catching fire with a populist movement, you know, she she inspired a lot of elites. She was very much uh, inf very influential at the elite level of ideas. And um, Warren people ended up being extremely influential in the Biden administration. So if you if you wanted to see what Biden would do, it paid to look at Elizabeth Warren before, you know, the election. Um, he didn't obviously do all the Warren stuff. Wealth tax didn't, you know, um, all that stuff didn't happen. The co-determination, all those things didn't happen. But, um, you know, Warren was focused on a lot of, uh, um, progressive stuff. So Warren has been more, more influential directly, but without that Bernie populist energy, I don't know whether the IRA would have been as bold as it eventually was. And I don't know whether or not Biden would have attempted to do student debt cancellation. So maybe, the burners had an effect of pushing the Democratic Party in the direction of what they wanted. Um, or maybe not. It's, it's really hard to tell because we don't know what, it would, what would have happened without them. There was this groundswell of populist anger and discontent. If Bernie Sanders had had a heart attack in 2014 and died, like what would what where how would that have manifested? Maybe Elizabeth Warren would have mounted a, you know, a challenge to Hillary Clinton in 2016 or 2020, maybe she would have been a more effective candidate. It's hard to say. Maybe she would have fizzled out, but maybe it just would have been a whole bunch of leaderless, you know, sort of street movements against climate change and whatnot, or through student debt cancellation. I don't know. So that that populist energy was powerful, and it went for Bernie. But I don't know whether or not Bernie himself did much. And so we'll never know. We'll never know. Okay, so those are two areas where there are different policy proposals than what Bernie, you know, might have might have done, but uh, are two areas that he really cares about. You know, sort of. The, the the climate and and sort of the student loans which which by the way on the student loans is is this is the critique that we mentioned earlier around sort of like uh you know pmc socialism uh apply here whereas people who go to college it's just one third of the country these aren't the truly you know poor um is 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 using sort of socialist rhetoric for student loans kind of an example of this uh sort of you know more pmc socialism to some degree it is because a lot of the people, you know, who are pushing hardest for this are people who just have, who just got too many degrees and, and just expected someone else to pay for it. So you get, uh, you know, people who will always be in sort of the upper middle class or even upper class if they want, uh, who come from good families, have lots of education, blah, 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 with these student loans that they don't want. There is that, that is an element there, but I would say that what, um, there's a, it's a lot more than that. So actually a lot of honest to God, working people, working class people, um, have problems with student loans because so you mentioned that one third of the country has gone to college. That's a, out of all age groups, how many people have graduated from college. But if you look at young people nowadays, how many actually enroll in some college, it's like 60% around. So you've got this huge group of, of Americans who tries college pay, you know, is often working class people who aren't well prepared for college um, end up dropping out with student debt. So they don't have a college degree. So they're screwed. You know, and, and some of them, these people went to the, the for-profit universities that were just really scammy and bad and have now all closed down, um, mostly. So you had a lot of people who got student debt, but then never got the degree. And those people are actually working class because they don't have that degree. And they're kind of screwed because now they have all this debt. And who's taking care of these people? And it's not even dischargeable in personal bankruptcy. Well, okay, it is, but it's just a lot harder. And it screws you more. So it's... um. So Biden, by capping the amount of per person debt relief, 
meant, uh, you know, his plan would have focused much more on those people, on the people who didn't borrow that much, uh, you know, and it would have it would have benefited people who were essentially failed by the college system or who just weren't prepared for it, who, you know, got screwed. It would have benefited them a lot more. And those are true working class people. I was, you know, a proponent of student debt that what really killed student debt relief besides the court, um, what what would have made student debt relief not as good an idea is inflation. So government deficits pump up inflation. The government owns all the student loans in the country, and that's why Biden could do a student loan cancellation in the first place. It owns most of the student loans in the country. Uh, that's since the Great Recession. It has owned most of them. It used to be that like banks would own your student loans. That's effectively done. Um, now the government, the federal government owns them all, and it can decide whether to collect on them or not. But but that those collections are a source of revenue for the government. And when you don't get that revenue, you get deficits. And when you get deficits, you it adds to inflation um, and produces pressure for austerity elsewhere, such as social programs that target the poor very directly um, or needed, you know, like public goods or industrial policy or whatever. The point is, it's not a very efficient use of public funds at a time when public funds have become constrained at a time. So, so it, deficits have started to matter again. And so, you know, student debt cancellation would have been a great way to provide some economic fiscal stimulus in 2011, 2012, you know, back when I was a strong supporter of the idea, despite not having student loans. So it wasn't, it wasn't a personal thing. I, I, I paid off all my student loans in one year and I didn't, I, I had very little to begin with. Uh, but then, so, so it wasn't for me, right? I didn't mind paying for someone else's student loans. Um, but then, and the whole thing of, well, I paid my student loans. Why don't you oh, shut up? You know, just, I'm so tired of Americans just like sitting there spending all their time wondering whether someone else is getting more of a freebie than they are. And it's like the whole zero sum mentality. Like, just shut up. Sometimes things are just good for the country. You live in a country. You know, I won't say you live in a society, but you live in a nation. And ultimately, what benefits that nation benefits you. And you should you should have some allegiance to, to what's good for that nation. And in 2011 or 2012, student debt cancellation would have been good for the nation because it would have uh, been fiscal stimulus that helped get us out of the Great Recession faster than we did. You know, it took us five, six, five to six years to get out of the Great Recession, five years maybe. Um, it could have taken us three had we done more fiscal stimulus. And, you know, we lost a couple of years there because we were just too fiscally conservative. Um, wasn't as bad as in the Great Depression with neoliberal FDR at the helm, but it was, you know, it was still is still fairly fiscally conservative. Uh, student debt cancellation would have been a great idea then. In 2022 or three, student debt cancellation will just like add to the inflationary fire, add fuel to the inflationary fire. And it's, you know, the, the macroeconomics have utterly changed. And so it's something I'm willing to put on hold, especially because by the, the income driven repayment plan will not increase the deficit because it basically says much because it basically says if you can't pay you don't pay right you don't you don't lose revenue from failing to collect money from people who weren't going to pay you money all right so income driven repayment is not gonna is not gonna break the bank here uh, so that was that was always the more important reform because remember if you just do a student if you just do a debt cancellation once people are going to then borrow 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 and expect another debt cancellation 10 years 15 years right you're just kicking the can down the road and so that's um I would have done a student debt can a one-time student debt cancellation in the Great Recession because everyone would have understood that it was a special one-time recessionary measure that wasn't likely to be repeated. If you did it now, everyone would think this is the new norm for the next 10 years. I can borrow as much as I want. In 10 years, another Democratic administration will just cancel it like it did this time. And it'll never end. Instead, income-driven repayment is the way to go. Saying, look, if you make a bunch of money because you've got a college degree, you've got to pay. If you didn't make a bunch of money because you dropped out or, you know, or maybe just because you're one of those downwardly mobile uh, people. And that'll stop those people from, uh, from kvetching, you know, uh, to use a, a Yiddish word there. It'll stop those people, the, the people who are like, you know, the, the shabby, like downwardly mobile intelligentsia. Okay, fine. You don't have to pay back your student loans. You can go live your life of like, you know, easy quasi-bohemian poverty at like age 40 and have a million cats. And you don't have to pay back your student loans. Go ahead have a cookie. And so then that's fine. You know, it's the, it, squeezing those people for money for the U.S. Treasury is not, was never going to be a big deal. And so, so, so the income-driven repayment part is the important part, and that, that lives, that stayed. The courts didn't strike it down. Um, the fact that they struck down the one-time thing is fine. Like, you'll be okay. Um, 
it will cause a little bit of chaos in some people's lives and it'll hurt some people who didn't deserve to be hurt. And that's bad. I'm sorry, but it's not going to like, um, it was always more of an iffy proposition in an age of inflation when people would have expected it also to be repeated every 10 years. So I'm not super sad about the, the demise of that. Um, but especially because the important part survived. You, 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 it's well said you, you write here in this piece that Bernie had a, a chance to create a real grassroots egalitarian movement in America and they bungled it. What talk about what was their opportunity and how exactly did they bungle it? So if you look at the demographics of who voted for Bernie in the two primaries in which he ran in 2016, Bernie got a lot of Midwestern voters without a college degree, people who ended up going to Trump um, largely. And so, and, and some of those people returned to Biden. Um, a lot of the, a lot of people who had been displaced by the Rust Belt really liked what Bernie had to say by that at, in that 2016, the Bernie campaign was not dominated by figures like David Sirota, Brianna, Joy Gray, or, um, or, you know, Nina Turner or Bernie's various other proxies, um, and, and stand-ins and, and people like that, or the, the Chapo Trap House people or the writers at Jacobin or whatever. Those people were, were very, very much submerged in 2016. And it was Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. It was really his moment. And the stuff he said came out of the mid 20th century. And it was pre PMC socialism. It was not PMC targeted. Bernie had, has had, and has, he's alive and kicking. Uh, Bernie had, and has a deep affection for the actual working class, for people without a college degree, for people who do manual labor, for low income people who are going to be low income for their whole life, not by choice. You know, he has a deep affection for those people and he wants to help them. And, um, and he is that populism inspired a lot of working class people to support Bernie in the, and even, you know, some, some working class non-white people too, some working class black people supported Bernie as well. And in 2016, it was, you know, he, he had less black support than, than white support, but, but certainly there was some, right. And, uh, and his, and his message reached to some degree across races. And then in the 2020, you see a complete reversal of that. You see the working class people go to, go for Biden pretty hard. Um, whereas the people who had gone, who went for Bernie were increasingly the PMC socialist types, the, the, you know, educated progressives who cared, you know, primarily about culture wars and who were, who saw themselves as factionalists because, you know, they, they want, they got this idea of we're going to overthrow the democratic establishment, but they, so they saw themselves as factionalists, you know, um, fighting like a, a version of the Eugene McCarthy, George McGovern fight from the 20th century, but they, um, they were from the PMC and they honestly, this is a little bit of a harsh thing to say, but I think they ignored the working class to a large degree and thought of themselves as the new working class. They thought of themselves as a downwardly mobile, educated precariat was the word that a lot of people used instead of the proletariat, which is who Bernie had originally appealed to. And you saw Bernie in the second campaign, Bernie's, you know, he's getting old, he's getting a little slower. And um, I mean, Biden's old. But Biden always sounded a little old, you know, even when he was young. Um, Biden's always sounded like that. But, uh, you know, Bernie was, you know, he was obvi obviously he was not quite as lucid as in the, in the first campaign. And um, he it, it was more about the Bernie movement than Bernie the man in 2020. And people like David Sirota really came to the fore. And those became the face of the campaign much more than in 2016. Uh, when they had sort of been in the background and um, Bernie's never been very good at picking personnel because he picks all these outsiders who it turns out were outsiders for a pretty good reason. <laughs> um, but then, and, and there's your factionalism. Yeah. So the working class drifted away. They, they went to Biden actually. And, and Biden elect in terms of electoral votes actually did really well because he was very well positioned in the electoral college, because basically in the electoral college, if you win like Michigan, if you do well in like Michigan or Ohio or whatnot, like that Pennsylvania, you gain an advantage above and beyond your popular vote in America. That's just the way that things are set up. And uh, Biden was able to win those voters. Biden had the electoral college advantage because the working class gravitated toward Biden and not Bernie. That was a wasted opportunity um, by not, not Bert, just Bernie himself, uh, who wasted it by picking the wrong personnel, but by the personnel. You know, um, the, the people in the Bernie movement failed to connect with the working class like Bernie did.
Bernie connected with the working class and the people he picked for his movement did not connect with the working class. They instead envisioned themselves and their college educated, you know, their, their shabby intellectual friends as the true working class and ignored the people who, you know, like staff Amazon warehouses and whatnot. And um, that doesn't mean that everyone who liked Bernie ignored that working class. But there's the people in charge of his campaign, okay? So now, oddly, in the in the aftermath of the Bernie movement, we're seeing a progressive movement that's more pro-labor, that's actually more pro-working class, you know, with unionization, more strikes, UAW, Starbucks, Amazon warehouses. We're seeing a move back toward the, the labor progressivism of the 20th century a little bit in the wake of the wreckage of Bernie's 2020 campaign, which was really more of a, uh, you know, a PMC uh, focused thing. And, and that's good. You know, it's, it's good that the Democrats are getting a bit of their working class mojo back. You know, Biden just went to the UAW picket line. It's the first time a president has ever gone to a union picket line and it's Biden doing it. And it's Biden's people doing it. They're very pro labor. Um, and so that, and I'm glad that the progressive movement is recovering some of that focus on the working class, uh, that they had lost. And, but I think that the, the Bernie 2020 campaign was, was a, uh, you know, that was a symbol of loss. And you saw it, it very closely, by the way, mirrored what happened with Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, because Corbyn focused a lot on social issues and lost the North English working class base that had sustained the Labour Party. And that's why Labour got stomped by the Tories. And Jeremy Corbyn just got utterly stomped. And now Labour is trying to tack back toward caring about the working class. I think we're seeing a similar process play out in the US where, um, you know, Bernie cared about the working class. Um, and was not a Corbyn type person, but his his handpicked people were all Corbynite type people, very similar. And I think they took a lot of their cues from Corbyn and his movement, and um, and that just failed. And so now that they are out of limelight, out of power, now we're starting to see progressivism and the Labour Party in the UK move back toward a focus on the working class, somewhat, you know. And that's and that's good. Anyway, there's my rant. Uh, no, that's a strong overview. L let's close out by mentioning the two other policies in the in, in the in the piece: uh, one on healthcare and one on uh, wealth tax. Right. So wealth tax. Um, there are some plus sides to a wealth tax, but overall, it's very hard to collect revenue from a wealth tax. And Bernie threw out these extremely high numbers for wealth taxes that would have been impossible to collect, and also just uh, you know just way too high, just unhelpful. Um, the idea was more to discourage wealth than to gain revenue for the government. Simply punishing wealth without actually getting money, like harvesting wealth from the rich, is, is pointless. Instead, we should do policies that actively raise a lot of money while also taxing the rich. Um, if you're listening to the show and you're like, well, you shouldn't tax the rich because that's my money and I made that money. Well, you made that money because the institutions of America go to China and see what, how they treat you. They will lock you right up. Um, go to Europe and see how they treat you. Go to another country and see how they treat you. You made all this money because America is awesome. Give a little bit back. And so the way that that should happen is capital gains tax. Um, there's no reason to tax capital gains at a lower rate than ordinary income. Um, the idea was that by taxing capital gains at a lower rate, you'd encourage businesses to invest and expand more. Uh, that turned out not to be true. It turned out that encouraging people to hold more stocks and bonds, which is what capital gains tax cuts do, uh, it turns out that didn't actually cause businesses to invest more for the future. And they didn't. And so that failed. So give up the failed policy and just raise the capital gains tax to what it used to be. And, um, and you will get, and, and research suggests that you'll get a lot of money for the government while also taxing the rich. We also need to repeal the STEPA basis. So you can't, um, you can't wash capital gains taxes by leaving your capital gains, by leaving your assets as an inheritance. Because um, we don't want to have a, you know, we don't want to become Europe, right? We don't want to have a, all these dynastic families controlling things. And so, um, so yeah, raise the capital gains tax, repeal the step up basis. That's better than a wealth tax because you actually get money, you know, and, and you, you don't hurt the economy. You get money. You're not just punishing the wealthy for being wealthy. You're actually raising money to, you know, do important projects, which we have a lot to do right now. Uh, so that's, that's wealth tax. Uh, healthcare. Um, Bernie basically promised people the moon on healthcare. There was this plan that was going to, we're going to outlaw private insurance, government pays for everything. And we're going to give you essentially every service you want under any circumstances. And we're going to claim that we're going to save all this money on administrative costs and lower profits, you know, compared to the for-profit insurance system. 
and that's going to save us all this money and healthcare is going to be really cheap uh, when we outlaw private health insurance was bullshit. Um, as my, as my grandfather used to say, that's bullshit. That's bullshit because the, the overall administrative costs and profit of private health insurers is like a pittance. It's a tiny amount of the over, of the excess cost that we have compared to other countries. Um, it's just not enough to save on all these things and, and offering basically anyone, any service that you want fully paid for with no out-of-pocket costs anytime you want is going to cause massive, massive, massive cost increases. And it's going to just utterly break the bank, not even of the government, just of the country that you're talking about, just throwing our whole GDP into, into healthcare. Um, it's stupid. However, a national health insurance system is good. Just not that one. The right one is the one that Japan uses, that Korea uses, that some other country countries use. Um, I'm familiar with the Japanese one, but it's it's a version of that system is used in a lot of places, and it was the basis for Medicare. Um, so that system basically has the government pay for part of everything, and then private insurance pay for the rest of everything. So the government will pay seventy percent of of whatever you get, and um, and then you have to get private insurance for the rest, or pay it out of pocket. And <clears throat> what this does is. Since you have to pay part of it, there's substantial cost sharing. So you know that you have to pay for the, the, you know, the cost of some of your healthcare. So this limits overconsumption. It limits people just like getting any, just getting a million MRIs a week, right? But at the same time, the government has its finger in every pie. The government is paying for 70% of everything or for poor people and very old people, it pays more than 70%. It pays like a hundred percent, but, but for, but for, you know, most people it pays 70%. And so, um, the government's paying 70%, so it gets to negotiate down the cost of everything. Right now, the Medicare system, when it does negotiate, is a very effective negotiator because it's a monopsony. It's because what? You're going to not take money from Medicare? You're screwed. You have to take money from Medicare. And so they're so powerful. There's this monopsony. You know, right now, government pays for 54% of the healthcare in America. Why not 70%? negotiation is the key because there's so many little choke points where people make so much profit in the healthcare system that are not private insurers. They're providers, not even hospitals, although the hospitals are a problem, but, but um, it's the people who sell stuff to hospitals that are just making a ton of profit that we can afford to squeeze them somewhat because they have a bunch of monopoly power. And um, a national health insurer will do that. It will negotiate on your behalf while also having cost sharing and preserving a role for the private insurance industry. This is how countries like Japan maintain, you know, keep costs down. Um, you know, so national health insurance is what we need. Ironically, the Medicare system works like that. So if we just extended Medicare to everybody instead of just the old, we would immediately get a Japan-like system. You could call it Medicare for all. And the Bernie people get very upset when I make the suggestion because isn't that just Medicare for all? But what Bernie did was take uh, this plan that's like completely unrelated to Medicare and called it Medicare for all. He just took the name, you know? And so he branded, it was this branding exercise, actual Medicare for all, actually existing Medicare for all is the correct solution. Bernie's thing that he called Medicare for all is a completely wrong solution. So it frustrates me. This, this branding exercise frustrates me greatly, but that's what we need to do. Yeah. Well put. I, I want to do a deeper dive on on healthcare at some point, as well as well as inequality at, at, at some point. I think this was a great overview of you know wh where you think Bernie went right, where you think his movement went wrong. Uh, some policy proposals based on some of his uh, his his wants and ideas. Um, and I think this is a good place to to, to wrap. Noah, thanks uh, thanks as always. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at terpentine.co, and let's partner together.